What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. December 1998. The residence of 39-year-old Claudia Benton was broken into by a savage intruder. The mother of two had been brutally beaten, sexually assaulted, and fatally stabbed. He seemed to be almost ghost-like the way he could get into houses without being heard. And, you know, ghosts scare people. The killer was a man named Angel Resendez who had been illegally boarding trains across the U.S. border from Mexico for over 20 years. He would go on to kill at least nine people. But capturing Resendez would prove to be one of the FBI's most challenging cases. There's 140,000 miles of track in North America. So how do you get your head around that? How do you find someone that's riding the rail? You never really knew who was going to be the next victim. It was whoever had something that he wanted, and that could be anybody. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode... We'll discuss Angel Resendez, the railroad killer. Angel Resendez was born in the east of Mexico on August 1, 1960. Little is known about his upbringing, but during his eventual trial, Resendez spoke to forensic psychologist Ramon Laval about his early years south of the border. Resendez grew up in a dysfunctional family. He didn't have a lot of connections with his family, siblings, or, for that matter, his parents. Little or no contact with his biological father. He told me that he had grown up with his mother and father. In fact, Upon further questioning, I realized he was talking about his maternal uncle, his mother's brother. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and journalist Jeffrey Wansel share more. He felt rejected by his mother. He felt rejected by his peers at school because he was quite awkward looking. He had protruding teeth. He wasn't one of the cool kids. And I think those those feelings stayed with him and they really did go on to shape who he became. Now, I'm not saying that unsettled childhood equals inevitably some kind of person who's going to turn to murder and serial killing. But I'm saying in this particular case, he was the only person he could depend on. The young man's life had been dominated by violence. His uncle, whom he considered his father, was reported to have been physically abusive. And around 12, he quit school and he actually left his uncle's home started living on the streets, just defending for himself. He was molested by a pedophile. Like many violent offenders, Resendez was a victim before he was a criminal. And this is a line that we don't like to talk about very much. We like to compartmentalize victims and offenders very clearly. But often that line is a very blurred one. As a preteen, Resendez found himself alone, learning how to survive. It must have been a significant moment. It's on that cusp 
of adolescence and puberty. A young man, especially a young man from such a troubled background, struggles out of the cocoon and tries to find himself. Resendez began illegally riding the North American railroads. It was a transient lifestyle that would come to define him. Resendez managed to travel quite far and wide within the United States by jumping on trains, jumping on an empty freight train and holding up in one of the carriages. And that would take him to a, a range of, of cities all over the place. It is thought that he first entered the United States when he was maybe 13 years old. And that's what he told me, that he was back and forth between Mexico and uh, the United States. But in fact, the first record, formal record, it's from when he was 16 years old, when he had entered and then deported. In 1980, Resendez was sentenced to a 20-year term in a U.S. prison for burglary, aggravated battery, and grand theft auto. However, after only serving five years, Resendez resumed his rail car life. In fact, by August 1996, the 36-year-old had been arrested 12 times and sent back to Mexico on no fewer than seven occasions. But nothing deterred Resendez, and his crimes would quickly become fatal. One of the most complicated questions about Resendez in the first instance is why he started killing. He was getting by. Things were not easy, and he was being deported back and forth across the Mexican-US border on a regular basis. But that was no real reason in itself to kill. And one of the most fascinating aspects of Resendez's character is where that initial spark came from. In August 1997, Resendez committed his first murder in Lexington, Kentucky, after traveling illegally back across the border. There was an attack on Christopher Meyer and Holly Dunn, who were a young couple. So he'd spotted this couple after he jumped off one of the freight trains that he'd ridden on. And I think his intention from the outset was to get to Holly Dunn and to, to sexually assault her. And in order to do that, he needed to get Christopher out of the way. And he killed him relatively quickly with a 50-pound rock, which must have been the most horrendous thing for Holly to witness and for Christopher to experience. With her boyfriend taken care of, Resendez turned his attention to 20-year-old Holly Dunn. She is terrified. Her hands are bound. She pleads with Resendez for her life. He sits down beside her and shows her an ice pick and says, look how easily I could kill you. But in the end, he doesn't kill her with an ice pick. In the end, he rapes her. It's impossible to imagine the terror she must have felt because now, Resendez goes away again and finds a wooden board and beats her mercilessly with it. Terrible injuries to her head, to her back, an attack so dramatic that he thought he'd killed her. Holly Dunn, to her eternal credit, manages to struggle to her feet and literally walks away from the scene of the attack. She makes her way to some nearby houses where, thankfully, they call an ambulance and the police. Resendez had, for the time being, gotten away with his devious act. The authorities wouldn't learn that a serial killer was on the loose for another 21 months. By the end of 1998, Resendez was preparing to launch yet another attack.
December 1998. 38-year-old Angel Resendez was regularly crossing the Mexican border into the U.S. Border Patrol had apprehended Resendez for illegal entry seven times in 1998 alone, unaware he murdered 21-year-old Christopher Meyer the year before. Now, the killer was back on U.S. soil, in Houston, Texas, and had murder on his mind. Detective Ken Macha sets the scene. That day in particular was a Thursday, December 17th. Day like most any other day. The afternoon was uneventful. I left for work around 3.30 and picked my son up at the sitter. It was his ninth birthday, and I picked him up. And on the way home, I got a call from the dispatcher at West University Place saying, we've got a body, a dead body. And I had chills and goosebumps thinking, it just can't be. It's got to be something else. It just got to be something else. But she assured me that, yes, there was indeed a deceased female. The murdered woman was a 39-year-old research physician and mother of two, Dr. Claudia Benton. There was a bloody butcher knife on a pillow next to her head. Blood all over the carpet, blood on the bed, blood in the hallway leading just at the threshold of the bedroom door. Overall, it appeared every room in the house had been rummaged, ransacked, drawers open. Everything appeared to be touched and looked through. Dr. Benton had been stabbed to death with a knife from her own kitchen. There were three fatal wounds on her body. In addition to that, she had 19 skull fractures from being beat upon the head. I can only surmise that some of them may have been from the bronze figurine. It was probably maybe about a foot in length that had been on the mantelpiece. Quite heavy. Part of it was broken off during the beating. I think there is an inherent misogyny to Resenders. There is an inherent hatred of women, which I think goes back to, to his rather dysfunctional relationship with his mother. So he thinks that women are there to provide something for him, to give something to him. He feels entitled to take that. Dr. Benton had a complete fracture to her ulna and dislocated uh, elbow as well. And so she put up a very, very fierce fight. From the blood in the hallway, it looks like she was very, very close to trying to escape from the bedroom and get away from him. But being hit so many times in the head already, he was just able to physically overpower her and subdue her. After analyzing the horrific crime scene, Ken had to make one of the most difficult phone calls of his professional career to Dr. Benton's husband, George. Very, very difficult talking to the man because here I am, I'm having to explain to him that there's a dead body in his house and he's telling me the only person that should be in there was his wife. Uh, I felt sick, felt really, really sick inside because I'm thinking to myself, what if that was me? So I tried to be as gentle as possible. I tried to give him every avenue out. Could it have been a nanny? Could it have been a maid? Anybody else? And he just kept telling me, no, it's just my wife's the only one that, that would be in there. As Detective Ken Macha took George on a somber tour of the crime scene, he helped identify anything that was out of the ordinary. It was actually George Benton that noticed the steering column housing in the garage. And he looked at it and said, that's got to be from the Jeep. The killer had made his getaway in Dr. Benton's vehicle. 
though he failed to notice the keys hanging by a kitchen cupboard. The next best thing he had to do was to try to hotwire the car. He knew he had to pop the steering column off, and so he did that. In doing so, he stuck his fingers in there to pry it out, and then he just set that into the garage. That was some of the best evidence that we had right there were his four fingerprints on the underside of that piece of plastic. This would become a crucial piece of evidence in the future trial of Angel Resendez. Lynn McClellan was an assistant district attorney who would eventually help to bring charges against the killer. Cars recovered in San Antonio. His fingerprints are found on the car. The car belongs to Claudia Benton. That kind of ties everything back. What's her car doing in San Antonio? We were sending his prints on it, and she's found dead back in Houston. So put two two together, you say, he's probably the one who killed her. A week after the murder of Claudia Benton, Detective Macha had a major breakthrough. For the first time, Angel Resendez would become known to the homicide detective, albeit under a different name. It was the day after Christmas. I'd received a call from a sergeant with the Houston PD. He had received information from their fingerprint division. We had an identification of the perpetrator. Fingerprints came back to an individual named Carlos Cluthier Rodriguez, one of his numerous aliases that he was arrested under. So his prints were in the automated fingerprint identification system in Texas under that name. Resendez used many different aliases, making it difficult for authorities to link him to his numerous misdemeanors throughout the years. Every time he was arrested, it seemed to give a different name. I mean, Resendez is what we finally kind of settled on in terms of a name, but he had used so many names in the past. So we knew he had fingerprint identification at that time. We knew who he was. We had pictures. And so we were slowly able to get these pictures out uh, into the media and try to generate some tips and leads and so forth. The hunt for Resendez continued over the next three months, but the killer remained elusive. By the spring of 1999, he was back in Texas, this time in the small city of Weimar. On the night of April 30th, he entered the home of Norman and Karen Cernick. The Cernicks were both asleep in their bed. From the evidence that was found, Mr. Cernick was laying on his left side. And the blow to the head with the sledgehammer woke up Mrs. Cernick. She sits up in bed and Resendez takes the sledgehammer left-handed like a baseball bat, strikes her square in the forehead, killing her instantly. He then goes back and hits Mr. Cernick one more time with the sledgehammer for good measure. Resendez bludgeoned the church pastor and his wife to death. Resendez was not an offender who would take weapons along with him to the crime scene. He would use whatever he could find that was there. He would decide to kill when he saw the opportunity to do so. There is an advantage to this as an offender because if you're not carrying weapons around with you, then you're not carrying evidence around with you. The escalation in Dr. Benton's case, he hit her with a smaller figurine and she fought back. This case with the Cernix in Weimar, there was no fighting back. He made sure with that first blow, but he didn't want to fight. He had enough fighting the last time. Evidence at the crime scene linked the Cernic murders to the killing of Dr. Claudia Benton. 
They collected, of course, very good DNA evidence from the Weimer case. That was sent to Department of Public Safety Laboratories. DNA testing was done, and it was an exact match to our perpetrator in our case. With at least three confirmed murders, the FBI began their search for the man who would later be given the moniker the Railroad Killer. However, Angel Resendez continued using various aliases. Tracking Resendez down wasn't going to be straightforward. Special Agent Bobby Knox Eckerd was part of the team assigned to the case. There's 140,000 miles of track in North America. So how do you get your head around that? How do you find someone that's riding the rail? So what you do is you go in, you meet with the seven major railroad companies. They all have agents that work for them. They have railroad police. So they started pulling all of his records, and he had dozens of trespass records on the railroad. The crimes that Resendez committed had a significant impact, especially on those living by railway tracks, because there wasn't a specific victim type. You never really knew who was going to be the next victim. It was whoever had something that he wanted, and that could be anybody. So the level of fear, the level of anxiety that his crimes generated was horrendous. Not long after the FBI's involvement in the case, they were able to link the unsolved murder of Christopher Meyer almost two years earlier to Resendez. We received a hit from 1997 where a couple was brutalized. The male was killed. The female was the only survivor of Resendez. And that was in Kentucky near railroad tracks. Through DNA, through eyewitness testimony of the survivor, and through a sketch that she was able to give to the officers there, We were pretty sure it was the same person. Once the DNA came back, it was a positive hit. So now we had him responsible for at least four homicides. At that point, we knew we had a serious, serious killer on the loose. Thirty-eight-year-old Angel Resendez had been linked to at least four murders, three of them in Texas, in the previous five months. The so-called railroad killer was headline news across the Lone Star State. Resendez is attracting growing notoriety in Texas. Inevitably, it feeds the vanity that has been growing inside him. He knows people are beginning to look for him, and yet he still feels he can get away with it. In fact, he was to kill again. Resendez was back in Houston, and his bloodlust had become insatiable. And on the night of June 3rd, he entered the home of 26-year-old Noemi Dominguez. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and Detective Ken Macha expand. Noemi is an elementary school teacher, and he breaks in, picks up a pickaxe-like tool, and attacks her. By now, Resendez is quite clearly out of control. Any sense of order, of civilization, of propriety is gone. He is now literally like an animal lusting for blood with blood dripping from him. Again, she's sexually assaulted. And again, he kills her. She lived near railroad tracks. Her body was covered up. Almost looked very similar to the way Dr. Benton was covered up. The legs sticking out from underneath the the covers. She was face down and she had been beaten to death. 
Resenders decided to cover some of his victims with blankets because this essentially dehumanizes them, it depersonalizes them. But also, it's about looking, it's about seeing and being seen. So he's covering his victims because he doesn't want to look at them, but he also doesn't want them to look at him. So it's this constant theme of shame that comes up time and time again. As the killer grew more experienced, Resendez began leaving calling cards at the scene of his murders. When he murdered the victims, he would find their ID, driver's license or some other type of ID, and would display them in such fashion that whoever entered the home later would find out who they were, how they looked like. In my mind, he wanted to see how they looked like before he bludgeoned them to death before he raped them and see what it would have been, almost as if had already developed a relationship with the victim. After killing Noemi Dominguez, Resendez was far from done. Just as he'd done after murdering Claudia Benton, he stole the schoolteacher's car and headed 100 miles west. It was a white Honda, and it was taken and driven to Fayette County near Schulenburg, where he then uh, murdered Josephine Konvichko. He toyed with law enforcement at that scene by displaying a toy train, displaying newspaper articles about the cases, the, the murders. This is like reading an article that says, I am the railroad killer. And I'm leaving this here for you to know and make sure that you know it is me, nobody else. I am the railroad killer. He was proud of that. It is one of the most troubling of moments when a killer starts to live up to his own hype, who becomes obsessed with his own fame. Resendez killed 73-year-old Josephine Konvichka with the same pickaxe he used just hours before when murdering Noemi Dominguez. When he left the premises, he'd actually left the pickaxe in Josephine's head and he tucked her up in bed, which was quite a bizarre kind of behavior. But he'd left behind a really important piece of evidence because on that pickaxe was some of Nomi Dominguez's blood. So those two murders were connected. Less than two weeks later, Resendez traveled over 800 miles north from Texas to Illinois. On June 15th, Resendez murdered 79-year-old George Morber and his 51-year-old daughter, Carolyn Frederick. George's home in the quiet village of Gorham was less than 100 yards from the railroad. In Illinois, he found a shotgun. The elderly gentleman was in his easy chair reading his newspaper. Resendez is able to gain entry into the house, ties him up with telephone cord, ties him to his easy chair, gets behind him with a 12-gauge shotgun and shoots him in the back of the head through the back seat of the recliner. A little while later, his daughter comes in and she is immediately beat to death with the 12-gauge shotgun. The father and daughter's deaths brought the total number of confirmed casualties to eight. Authorities were becoming desperate to capture the elusive railroad killer. He seemed to be almost ghost-like the way he could get into houses. 
without being heard, without disturbing the occupants. And that was one of the strangest things. I still don't know how he got into Dr. Benton's house and all the other houses. And that was a scary part. And ghosts scare people. It's just a natural reaction to something that can't be explained. On June 21st of 1999, working with our FBI headquarters, we were able to add Resendez to our top 10 most wanted fugitives. When anyone has made a top 10, both the media and the public are made aware of how important this case was. The media helped us immensely in this case. The addition of Resendez to the most wanted list brought nationwide exposure. And as the tips came in, anything that was really, really helpful, that sounded legitimate, was funneled to the task force. And it was just a huge coordinated effort in trying to find this guy. This was the most complex case most of us had ever worked because the jurisdiction was huge. It was all the way in North America. You know, you just didn't know where he was going to be. Once we identified he had a wife or a common law wife in Mexico was the pivotal point for me. Resendez's wife was brought across the border for questioning by the FBI. Special Agent Bobby Knox Eckert led the interview. She was brought up here. She brought her daughter, who was approximately three or four months old, and we conducted the interview over a two-day period. During that interview, I was able to provide her with enough information that she came to believe that he had committed the homicides. We showed her the DNA. We showed her fingerprints. We asked her if she had ever received anything from his trips into the U.S. After her visit here, the U.S. Marshals, the Texas Rangers, went back down into her village and she provided everything that he had ever given her that she still had in her possessions. And they were, in fact, stolen at the crime scenes. Resendez remained in hiding, but the authorities were doing all they could to locate the criminal. Once you take away all their comfort zones, they have nowhere to go and they generally make mistakes. The tactics worked. With nowhere to run to, a sister of Angel Resendez convinced the killer to turn himself over to investigators. We had one sister who lived in New Mexico that would prove to be the person that negotiated surrender that a Texas Ranger developed trust with this individual. And through that development, she ended up contacting him and arranged a surrender. And then it was his brother who accompanied him when he turned himself to the Texas Ranger in El Paso, the crossing between Mexico and the United States by the Rio Grande. Now, this is something straight out of a movie. It really does have a lot of dramatic effects. And I think that is very revealing about Resendez. He's the director in his own drama. He is calling the shots. He's in control. After hunting the railroad killer for nearly seven months, Detective Ken Macha was stunned when Resendez gave up the ghost. I'm amazed that he did it. All he had to do was just stay in Mexico and then come across on a train or come across the border whenever he wanted to and commit more murders and keep up his little side business of selling jewelry in Mexico and live happily ever with his wife and kid. I'm grateful that he turned himself in. I think he was maybe a bit concerned about his wife and daughter in Mexico being harmed if there were some bounties on his head. 
Resendez may have surrendered to police, but there was no way this was going to be an open and shut case for prosecutors. With a trial looming, defense attorneys were going to plead insanity, but not before Resendez had admitted to a few more skeletons in his closet. July 1999. Angel Resendez was in police custody. Investigators were aware he'd killed eight people and were still looking into whether there might be more. The unsolved murder of an 87-year-old woman from Hughes Springs, Texas, was high on their list of potential victims. At one of the task force meetings, we had police officer from Hughes Springs, where Leafy Mason was murdered. They took out the complete window frame where the suspect in their case made entry, and they preserved it as evidence. And sure enough, they matched up his fingerprints, Resendez, there he was. So we had a good match to that case as well. Resendez had bludgeoned the 87-year-old woman to death with a flat iron in October 1998, two months before the killing of Dr. Claudia Benton. She was now the ninth known victim of Angel Resendez but it's believed the total number of murders is even higher. He confessed to 12 or 13 crimes, and they were able to, to confirm through DNA evidence that he had, in fact, committed those crimes. The killer talked about his many possible victims with forensic psychologist Ramon Laval. We didn't discuss the full chronology on what came first and second, third, fourth, but I have an idea that he, it, it started, as far as we know, in 86. Ramon had been asked to evaluate the mental state of Angel Resendez after a judge prevented the killer from pleading not guilty by reason of insanity unless he was assessed by an independent psychologist. He was not only willing to admit culpability. He talked about them. He said, yeah, he was the actor. He was the one who perpetrated them. And he would not be willing to give anybody else credit. He was very narcissistic, very self-absorbed. His manner of communication about the crimes was very calm, emotionally collected. He did not display any extreme emotional feelings about them. No sorrow, no regret. Despite admitting to many murders, the prosecution only needed Resendez to be found guilty of one so they had to find the most airtight case against him, the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. We had the strongest case by far. I think some of the other counties might have wanted to have had their own trial uh, and convict him. But once he's convicted of capital murder in, in Texas, there's not much need to do it again. Assistant District Attorney Lynn McClellan was part of the prosecution team. In every criminal case, you have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's really just proving the elements of that crime. The evidence of who did it came from his fingerprints on Claudia Benton's case and fingerprints in the apartment, fingerprints on the car that was recovered in San Antonio afterwards. So that's really not a real difficult case to prove because all the evidence is there. Fingerprints and DNA are much better than eyewitness because eyewitnesses can make mistakes and fingerprints and DNA are not. The trial began on May 8, 2000 in Houston, Texas. Ken Macha was in the courtroom. 
One thing that stuck out immensely was the amount of weight that Resendez gained. He looked like a completely different person. He must have put on 40 to 50 pounds, maybe even more. He was quiet, didn't say a word. I don't believe he said one single word throughout the trial unless he was conversing uh, with his attorneys. As expected, the defense attorneys claimed that 39-year-old Resendez was not guilty by reason of insanity. They say he's schizophrenic. They say he's any kind of a mental disease. Did that cause him to do it? Did he know right from wrong? Obviously, he knew right from wrong because he was trying to get away, and he got away. I mean, there are lots of people that have mental diseases. They don't all go around killing people. Before the trial, Resendez had been quoted in the media calling himself an angel of God. But Ramon Laval didn't agree with the killer's theory. If he was insane at the time of the offense, and if he was doing the will of God, where did the rape come from? He could not quite explain that. He was like, huh, I wonder why you're asking me that question. You know, I hadn't quite thought about that. So basically, it's almost a confession that I did this. But when I did this, I didn't know right from wrong. I didn't know what I was doing. And thus, I can't be held legally responsible. I get a get-out-of-jail-free card because I didn't know right from wrong. Ramon's testimony put the idea that Resendez was insane firmly to bed. My conclusions at the end were, despite his expression of delusions, statements that had a very delusional flavor, I came to believe that he was not insane and that he was just smart and manipulative and knew how to use information. As a final nail in the coffin, prosecutors called Holly Dunn to the stand. The testimony of the girl who had cheated death at the hands of Resendez in Kentucky three years previously left the jury with no doubt. On May 18, 2000, Angel Resendez was found guilty of the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. Four days later, he was sentenced to death. I knew that the verdict was going to be guilty. There was really no defense put up. When he was sentenced to death, I was happy. To me, it was the appropriate punishment, not to get into any of the debates about death penalty, right or wrong. In Texas, that was a punishment, and that's what he got. Resendez was on death row for six years before his stay of execution came to an end. On June 27, 2006, FBI Special Agent Bobby Knox Eckerd went to Huntsville, Texas to witness the death of the railroad killer firsthand. They allow him to make a statement. In this case, he apologized to the victims, but he then kind of claimed that the devil made him do it. He said it was my fault because I let the devil into my life, but the devil was responsible. The drugs were administered at that point, and the very last thing he was asking in Spanish for forgiveness from God. And then he died very peacefully. I felt no joy in the fact that he had been executed. I felt nothing towards him other than anger for what he had done to the victims and what he left the victims' families to deal with for the rest of their lives. He was gone, but they still are here having to deal with his crimes. What Claudia Benton's husband said probably sums it up. He was evil, contained in human form, a creature without a soul. No conscience, 
no sense of remorse, no regard for the sanctity of life. He was probably the most evil person that I ever was involved in the investigation, and I've investigated lots of murders, child molesters, kidnappers, but I think this guy was inherently evil. He's just a savage animal, an absolute savage animal. The way he dealt with his victims was just completely savage. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last on the next episode of What Makes a Killer. November 13th, 1977, Los Angeles, California. 14-year-old Sonia and 12-year-old Dolores were on their way home from a day of shopping when two police officers stopped them for questioning. But the so-called policemen were, in fact, killers. They fell victim to two men who knew no compassion, no remorse, no empathy. It is beyond depraved. The young girls were abducted, held captive for five days, repeatedly raped, then strangled. Their killers were two cousins, Angelo Bono and Kenneth Bianchi. You've got the smooth-talking, sharp, glib Bianchi. And then you've got the street-con-wise, smart predator in Bono. That's a pretty dangerous combination. These partners in crime went on a killing spree, murdering 10 young women in just four months. Many were dumped on hillsides across Los Angeles, lending the killers their infamous name, the Hillside Stranglers. These two were not going to stop until they were caught. This had a really devastating effect on the lives of women in Los Angeles. 